Welcome back to the Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari. Tonight, we have another foreign policy power panel for you. We have an esteemed, esteemed panel of guests who will give us analysis on the growing tensions between the U.S. and Iran, all while they're trying to court one another to get another nuclear deal. And the China-Iran deal, what does this mean? What are the implications, short-term, long-term? And what will it mean for the U.S.'s two top adversaries to cozy up together for the next 25 years? And without further ado, we will introduce our panelists for tonight, these three gentlemen who need no introduction, particularly in this field, superstars for sure. Let me start with Michael Rubin. Dr. Michael Rubin is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he specializes in Iran, Turkey, and the broader Middle East. He is a former Pentagon official who has lived in post-revolution Iran, Yemen, and both pre- and post-war Iraq. He spent time with the Taliban before 9-11. I'm sure that he has a lot to tell us about all these different experiences. Author of several books and a renowned scholar on the subject. And Mr. Bijan Kian, welcome back to the program. The twice confirmed advisor to the White House under three consecutive administrations, reporting directly to Presidents Bush and Obama serving as the deputy lead on President Trump's landing team for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, also an Ellis Island Medal of Honor recipient and globally recognized expert on the economy and national security. And of course, Shi Wei Wang, uh, welcome back to the program as well. We had him on our podcast. He was the Princeton PhD student who was apprehended in Iran just months after arriving there to do research on his dissertation. He spent over 40 months in uh, Iran's notorious Evin prison, and he is currently a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he is battling the mullahs one tweet at a time. If you follow him on social media, he does tremendous work. Welcome to all of you. Thank you, Gentlemen, we, we scheduled this program a few weeks ago when the Iran-China deal was announced. Um, and we will spend a, a good amount of time discussing the ramifications of that deal. But it seems that since the time that that deal was announced, uh, we've seen a lot of commotion coming out of Vienna. We have seen uh, the U.S. moving faster than ever to try to secure a deal. Uh, and at the same time, we're seeing the Iranian regime flex their muscles more and more, believing they're the ones who have uh, the leverage. Um, Michael, I want to start with you. You know, why is it that we're seeing so much eagerness out of Washington? Do you think that um, we're going to get a deal this time around? How soon are they going to get the deal? And I mean, why, why would this speed? Why would this motivation? Well, I think the enthusiasm for the deal is based on a false notion, a false reading of Iran, that this dichotomy between the so-called reformers and the hardliners actually matter. If you talk to people in the Biden administration, they're trying to rush a deal because they believe that by rushing a deal before Iran's elections, that they can somehow privilege the so-called reformers. The problem with this is twofold. First of all, that the difference between the reformers and the hardliners uh, isn't substantive when it comes to national security. It's a case of good cop, bad cop. The other problem is that when it comes to Iran's nuclear program, that and when it comes to terrorism, when it comes to any of the security-related issues about which 
the United States is concerned, that's in the hands of the unelected bureaucracy. And therefore, um, I mean, negotiating with Iranian president, foreign minister, and so forth over the nuclear program is like negotiating with the American Secretary of Agriculture over the nuclear program. It just doesn't work. Um, but when it comes to the question of Lisa of how fast will this deal happen, look, we can reach a deal if we're willing to give the Iranians everything they ask for and more. But what I suspect that Iranians will do uh, is recognize that the profit is in the process rather than actually coming to a deal. And therefore, they're going to try to drag out these negotiations as much as possible to take advantage of our desperation. Uh, and speaking of, of that desperation, Bijan, I want to move to you. What is that calculation? What is the um, specific calculation that's coming out of the Iranian regime? And what are some of the markers that we're seeing? Do they actually have this confidence or is it a false confidence on the global stage? Well, look, you know, uh, you addressed in the beginning of the program uh, the idea of two imperialist rivals uh, uh, facing the United States. And, and you know, I, I just, it humbles me to say that the those two imperial powers are far better negotiators than uh, we could even see. Uh, the reason I say that is because our our history, our history shows that, you know, back in 71, 72, Nixon going to China, we were hoping that we'll bring the communist China into the global community and everything is going to get better. And uh, that has not really worked for us. As you know, we, we did not calculate that right. It's interesting you mentioned the word calculus. Yes, the work uh, that we did uh, was wrong because China has become more oppressive abroad and more aggressive, uh, more oppressive at home and more aggressive abroad. And none of those assumptions have come true. Today, we see an aggressive imperialist China that wants to do uh, the things that it's doing in American American media, American corporations, American academic institutions. So the Iranians uh, are uh, carrying the same attitude. You know, ancient civilizations, they carry that pride that, you know, we, uh, some of it is natural, some of it is superficial, and most of it is superficial. Why? Because in 2016, they had $140 billion oil revenue. Now they're sitting on about $8 billion of oil revenue. They're running out of oxygen is what it is. And if we are sitting in Vienna trying, instead of making a good deal, or instead of realizing that there is no good deal with this regime, they will not abide, abide but what they, uh, by what they seem to be promising, if we continue the same mistakes, Lisa, and uh, those dear listeners, I think the United States is going to buy two copies of the same newspaper on the same day. <laughs> I like that. Um, in the meantime, you know, last weekend, Iran's enrichment facility at Natanz was taken out by a cyber strike. They're blaming that on uh, Israel. And in response, they come out and say, oh, you know what? Instead of 20 percent, we're going to move to 60 percent. They've made this announcement before, but now they feel justified to say, look, we've been hit. And now this is going to be our response uh, to the world. Uh, Shiba, this is a, a good question for you. I remember when you were on my podcast, you said, one of the things that um, you know that that you were give, given at, at Princeton or were, were taught, you took this with you to Iran when you went to visit. You said, 
you know, we we feel guilt as as Americans that we are um, imperialistic, that we're harsh. You know, when you look at the optics of this and say, oh, wow, Iran was hit by um, an attack at, at one of their, you know, at the infrastructure. And infrastructure is such a buzzword these days. It's one of those that words that really make you feel woke, right? Infrastructure, their infrastructure was attacked. Does it really give them more leverage on the world stage with this attack? Well, I think we are giving them the leverage uh, that they don't deserve. I think that's, that is the problem. Uh, because because knowing uh, that uh, uh, the United States uh, under the Biden administration is determined uh, to go back to the deal, and then you, if if you put yourself in the, uh, in Mr. Hamine's uh, shoes, uh, so what are you going to do? Uh, you're going to do exactly that. So knowing your opponent is determined, so determined to get that deal, you're going to jack up everything, uh, 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 all the. Um, demands uh, uh, that you have. Um, and then why not? I mean, I, I, I think we should believe them if they want to do 90% because they know the Biden administration is likely to uh, take the bite, you know, uh, to take the bait. Right. And and because of that, um, you know, the negotiations, it's it's surprising that they haven't been able to compromise already, because it seems like whatever they say, it's the, the Biden administration moves the goalpost to say, OK, we'll, we'll accommodate you on that. Um, but we haven't seen the sanctions removed, um, but, you know, they can just not enforce them. Um, Michael, what what are the best case, worst case scenarios that can come out of Vienna? Well, the worst case scenario, of course, is that Iran will, we will re-enter the deal. The deal won't address many of the loopholes which it didn't address back in 2015. And Iran will be left with an industrial scale nuclear program uh, and the controls upon it lifted. Remember, the, the Joint Conference of Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal in 2015, completely reworked counter-proliferation precedent. When the Soviet Union collapsed, the legacy states like Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Belarus had to forfeit their nuclear weapons. In 1991, South Africa decided to come in from the cold with its covert nuclear program. And even with Nelson Mandela uh, subsequently in power, it took the International Atomic Energy Agency 19 years to give South Africa a clean bill of health. In 2003, Libya had to physically dismantle the entirety of its program and yet in 2015, we were so desperate for a deal that we left Iran with more P1 centrifuges than Pakistan had when it built not a bomb, but an arsenal. So that's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario, honestly, is that we don't come to a deal uh, and that the Iranians are going to continue to operate in a way which is going to expose them to sanctions. The best case scenario would be that we not lift sanctions so that the Iranians remain under pressure uh, until the clock runs out on some of the Iranian leaders or we, the, the drawn out negotiations leave more time for actions such as what we saw in the Tans last week.
Yeah, and and hopefully, you know, the sanctions that were put under the Trump administration um, were more more targeted towards the regime and the sectors that um, are away from the main street economy as much as possible. We know that that's not entirely, um, you know, possible. And and of course, the regime passes along that economic burden uh, to the people. I always want to clarify that because I am of, of Iranian descent and I do feel for the Iranian people, but I also hear from them how much this pressure has helped them or can potentially help them even more in their future political endeavors. Michael, I want to stay on with, with you for another question, a uh, follow-up to this. We spoke about this off-air, and um, I'm always curious to ask my guests who are, you know, um, in the know about Iranian affairs and foreign policy about this. It makes no sense. If you, know, you, you, know, you bring someone from the moon and you tell them, this is what we're doing with the Iranian regime. They're bullies and we don't, we don't like them. They're our, our enemies. Uh, they're enemies of almost every country in the Middle East. They're all their neighbors and they're enemies to 80 million people back at home. But we will do everything we can to appease them. We took the Houthis off the terror list already in the first week of Biden's administration. Uh, we are bending backwards in every way. We've lined up all sorts sorts of cabinet members that are going to be sympathetic to getting back into an Iran deal. And every, in, in every single way, we've let the Iranian regime know that we are on board and we are desperado. Why? Why is it? I mean, what what's the bottom line reason for this, Michael? Well, number one is simply self-flagellation on the part of the Americans. We don't understand that our our adversaries have agency. It's not all about us. Uh, and yet the Biden administration and many within the Biden team are assuming that somehow we're guilty of original sin. The second part reason for this is what I discussed before, that we really believe that the reformers are sincerely interested in reform. They're interested in a change of style, but not in a change of substance. And then the third and final reason is simply an ignorance of history. Some people will say maximum pressure doesn't work, although I can name two instances off the bat where maximum pressure did cause Iran to have an about face uh, with what it took to release the American hostages back in 1981, uh, who had been seized 444 days earlier, and what it took to end the Iraq, uh, Iran-Iraq war. But if we want to flip that over, we've tried to shower the Iranians with aid and assistance before. In between 1998 and 2005, the European Union more than tripled its trade with Iran. During the same period of history, uh, the price of oil quintupled and Iran took that foreign currency, that hard currency windfall, and took it to the bank and invested, um, by some estimates, up to 70% of that hard currency windfall in uh, its ballistic missile program and its in then covert nuclear program. And then the kicker on this is who was in control between 1998 and 2005? The so-called reformers. Uh, because we took our eye off the ball simply because we forgot that it doesn't matter what the Iranians say, it matters what the Iranian regime does. And in this case, again, the nuclear program is within the hands of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the permanent security structure. You know, um, Bijan, at what cost are we doing all of this? I mean, um, from a foreign policy standpoint, um, you served under three consecutive, both Republican and Democrat um, presidents. And you know that we've always had 
um, with the exception of, of under President Obama, we've always had a very steady and um, loyal relationship to towards Israel, um, our main ally in the region. And um, so on the surface, we know that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin traveled to Israel last week. We know Jake Sullivan doubled down on our um, you know, promise to support Israel unconditionally. But on the other hand, you know, we're just today, uh, sources have, have said that Israel has or the U.S. has gone out of their way to tell Israel to stop with the you know, sideline attacks, whether they're in Syria or at Natanz, because they do believe that it were, was the Israelis at Natanz, even though there hasn't been a formal confirmation of that. They're saying stop with these attacks because you are ruining our chances at an Iran nuclear deal. At what cost are we disrupting our relationships with others, uh, particularly Israel in the region, just to push forward with this deal? Yeah, good question, Lisa. And uh, you asked a uh, uh, very important uh, question of price. And uh, I am, I am uh, concerned and assured. I'm concerned because, as you say, this administration seems to be so bent on killing any positive legacy of Trump administration for whatever reason. They're so bent on killing all the legacies that we saw a funny instance, actually, I kind of smiled when I saw Secretary Blinken uh, you know, pretending that he could not remember the name of the Abraham Court. Uh, something that, you know, for so many decades, uh, no other administration was able to, to do uh, what the Abraham Abraham Accord is done, and uh, even pretending it's not important because he doesn't remember the name. But I'm also, uh, you know, today's uh, warning to Israel is also concerning because it's a departure from a long-standing policy. Uh, since when do we want to appease an enemy and upset a friend like this? But you know what assures me is that the, uh, the state of Israel is not going to sit back and listen to uh, advice from uh, Washington uh, or the direction, God forbid, because that's not going to happen. Uh, I'm sure that the state of Israel is going to do what the state of Israel needs to do to protect the people of Israel and uh, to protect the country. So uh, I'm with. You. I understand. I understand this uh, this uh, amazing appetite that I see in the current administration to just go after Trump policies. If, uh, it, you know, they say maximum pressure doesn't work, wait a minute. Islamic Republic earned $100 billion in 2016, and current revenue is at $8 billion. How can you or how can anyone say that maximum pressure doesn't help? Of course maximum pressure helps. Look what they are. They are getting on Clubhouse. They're getting on social media. Their foreign minister is just spewing lies as, uh, as always, they're desperate. They're desperate. They're academicians. They're think tanks are publishing papers saying, oh, you know, change the calculus using artificial intelligence language by saying, you know, the algorithms have to be changed and all the uh, nonsense. What algorithms? You know, you have no power, Islamic Republic. And if a Biden administration just sits back to realize the Islamic Republic is at its lowest, weakest point, they would not be so meek, in my view, in uh, my view, in uh, negotiating. They'll be very strong. They will insist on things 
and uh, they'll get, I believe, I believe the Iranian, uh, the Islamic Republic government in Iran is at weakest point. And what Michael said makes perfect sense. You know, we, we should not give them the tools to raise the cost of national security on us on the next round. And if we do that, then shame on us. Because once again, we have proven that the Iranians are much better negotiators than we are in the United States. I don't believe mm -hmm. that. I like to believe that we have very good negotiators who will wake up, who will realize this. I even want to believe, maybe I'm wrong, but I want to believe that the Islamic Republic has come to Biden administration and says, let's pretend everything is okay. Help us out. You know, lift our image a little bit. We'll have an election. We'll have a good guy now. The good guy is going to come and run the country, and that good guy is going to negotiate better. So leave your hard stuff for the good guy, but it's not going to happen. They just cannot afford. Sit back and ask yourself a question. Can the IRGC afford to get out of corruption? Is it even possible? Can they continue to live without corruption? I would say no. So I'm concerned, but I'm assured Israel will do what's good for Israel. Yes, and they must. But speaking of giving them tools, if the United States doesn't do so, maybe China will. I want to move to speaking about the Iran-China deal. Um, when we first, as I said, we tried to plan this program weeks ago when the China-Iran deal was announced to talk about the far-reaching um, implications of that deal. Um, you know, Shiwei, it, it seems like, you know, outside circles like these, um, where the four of us find ourselves, there hasn't been much interest in this deal. The mainstream media didn't talk about it much. Um, that's no surprise, obviously. But the Biden administration already had an uphill battle with both China and Iran. And now we see the two of them cozying up together. And for 25 years and for $400 billion, how significant is this deal? Uh, uh, well, first of all, you have to know the deal, uh, about the deal, uh, uh, a draft was leaked uh, from Iranian government source uh, last June. And when the, the draft was leaked, uh, the Chinese uh, foreign ministry declined to comment um, at least twice uh, when asked by foreign reporters. Um, and they remained reticent. There is not a single piece of analysis um, uh, from a Chinese official source about the deal. Um, and then uh, um, my understanding from uh, my contact uh, in China and Iran, um, familiar with the situation, uh, told me the Chinese government uh, wasn't really interested in signing the deal. Because imagine in uh, uh, mid-2020, it wasn't clear who's going to win the uh, U.S. election. Um, and then uh, China is just like any other country. Uh, it's risk averse. Uh, when it comes down to uh, its interest in Iran, it's largely commercial interest. Uh, and then uh, commercial entities, businesses are uh, wary of uh, U.S. sanctions. Uh, so the U.S., uh, the, the, the Chinese certainly did not want to uh, 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 put um, uh, its eggs uh, in a, a dangerous, um, a precarious uh, basket, uh, that is uh, Iran. Uh, so they they want uh, so they waited uh, as to see who's going to win the uh, U.S. election uh, and then uh, what direction uh, of uh, U.S. Uh, policy orientation uh, on Iran uh, is uh, uh, how how that going to shift and as it turned out um, 
uh, 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 Joe Biden has won the, uh, the, the, the election. And then you can see uh, from a realtor uh, graph uh, that the Chinese illicit purchase of Iranian oil skyrocketed since, uh, since November 2020. Um, and then, um, um, so in uh, uh, February 2021, China was buying uh, uh, half a million barrels per day. Uh, illicit, uh, 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 illicit purchase. Uh, by March, uh, China was buying close to a million barrels per day. Uh, what does it tell you? I, I think it's uh, uh, fairly reasonable to say that the Biden administration isn't really enforcing uh, oil sanctions uh, on China, uh, the, 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 the Iranian oil sanctions. Because remember, uh, during the Trump administration, we have brought down the Chinese uh, purchase of Iranian oil almost next to zero. Um, and steadily, right? There was there was agreement actually uh, uh, given by uh, uh, you know between the Trump administration and the Chinese uh, that uh, Trump would allow that the, the U.S. would allow China to buy certain amount of uh, Iranian oil so Iran could uh, pay uh, China its debt. Uh, but on, on top of that, uh, China uh, effectively refrained uh, from uh, illicit purchase uh, or official purchase of Iranian oil. So it's important that we have to ask why China is buying that much oil from Iran under Biden. Uh, and then uh, uh, talking about the 400 billion uh, over 25 years, um, that's uh, first of all, the, uh, uh, the Chinese foreign ministry uh, said there's no concrete uh, figures in the deal. And the deal uh, merely uh, lays out a, uh, a roadmap uh, for future cooperation. And I think we should uh, uh, we have a good reason to believe that uh, uh, there's the, the, the deal lacks uh, a substance. The reason being, if we put this in context, uh, in the last 15 years, uh, uh, America, the United States of America, has been the, uh, the, top, uh, 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 the top destination for Chinese foreign direct investment. And then China has invested uh, per annum in the last 15 years, $12 billion in the United States. Uh, uh, can you imagine uh, in the next 25 years, uh, uh, if we average to, uh, to per annum investment, China would, uh, would have to invest $16 billion in Iran. Uh, that's significantly higher than the amount of China, uh, China's investment in the United States in the last 15 years. Uh, how, is, how is Iran going to absorb that money, mm -hmm. uh, that much uh, investment? Uh, what about political risks, right? What if in four years uh, there's a Republican uh, administration coming again uh, and then we reimpose sanctions? Or even without that happening, what if Iran itself, uh, the regime, uh, because the regime looks at uh, its relation with outside world in a zero-sum uh, manner. What if um, it considers uh, the U.S. returning to the deal as something that they have to exploit, uh, and then they do uh, something foolish um, and then uh, as, uh, a step up a pressure, and then we restart uh, some sort of a tension with Iran, even under Biden administration. I think that these are possibilities uh, uh, that, that can be foreseen. Uh, so will China uh, um, be um, um, so unwise uh, to put that much investment under this kind of political risk? Um, I think that's uh, uh, largely uh, questionable. Um, but that being said, uh, the deal also, uh, we have to note, um, uh, with the uh, 
the draft uh, leaked out uh, to the public uh, for uh, for half a year. China did not sign the deal. And why did China sign the deal right now? So I think uh, that, that that it's very indicative because uh, uh, um, because the Biden administration is conniving a, a, a China to get closer with Iran uh, for uh, for uh, for future cooperation because uh, the Biden administration is so keen to return to the deal and to mobilize all kinds of leverages uh, to help Iran uh, to uh, uh, to improve Iran's bargaining power. Um, both inside Iran and inside the United States. Now, after the deal was uh, 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 signed, uh, um, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal uh, published um, uh, published articles saying, "Well, now Iran has got uh, uh, closer to China, and Iran has got alternatives, real alternatives to JCPOA." Uh, sort of a create, you know, this kind of a public opinion. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, circling in the major media outlets, uh, 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 create a kind of uh, uh, urgency uh, for the Biden administration to uh, to push harder uh, for even more urgent return to the deal. I think that's kind of the uh, uh, most immediate effect of that deal. Wow, um, I, I, want, I just want to underscore because I want to actually uh, follow up with with you. I want to underscore what you said because we don't hear this opinion often. You're saying not only did the Biden administration not flinch, not try to stop China from getting access to the entire Middle East through Iran, through $400 billion, through 25 years of investment, but they actually encouraged this deal in order to bring these two countries closer together. Well, to what extent the Biden administration encouraged, it's hard to say. We don't have uh, a hard evidence. But uh, judging from the trend, all right, China didn't sign the deal under Trump. China signed the deal under Biden. China didn't buy Iranian oil under under Trump. The the the, the numbers skyrocketed uh, to uh, to about a million uh, a million barrels a, uh, a day uh, by the end of March. What does it tell you? Uh, America uh, under Trump, uh, sorry, under Biden, is not enforcing its sanctions on uh, uh, on Iran um, uh, when it comes to uh, China uh, purchasing Iranian oil, right? So I think that's uh, clearly, uh, you know, clear enough uh, incentive for China to go ahead uh, and, and do the deal. And and, and uh, you know, you know, from the perspective of the Biden administration, why not? Uh, you, you know, if China does the deal, there's the, you know the deal will be lack of a substance. But it will create uh, such uh, internal um, um, public opinion pressure for the, uh, to push for the more urgent return to the deal. I mean, isn't what the Biden administration uh, is after? Right. But they want it so badly. You're saying that they would they would almost sacrifice, you know, one one foreign policy disaster in order to get back into the deal. But maybe I can ask you this question, since um, you you know China and Iran so well. But have we gotten to a place where we can't curb China any any? We, we just can't curb them. They have grown out of control. They are um, entirely unhinged when it comes to their investments all over the world. When it comes to their uh, um, you know, desire for hegemonic, you know, um, domination, whether it's in that part of the world or in Africa or in South America and now uh, in the Middle East, that they're basically saying, look, we've, we already lost to China. We're not going to be able to curb them in a significant or meaningful way. So let us get them together with Iran. And if we normalize relations with Iran, we can just start, you know, we can have this trifecta um, of, of, of just 
amazing trade. Let it just overflow. Let it let it let it be open to us. Well, that's I would say uh, that's like a uh, you know dress or a nightmare, like a daydream, right? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so you know, to be fair, I mean, China is number two superpower, um, but its capacity is so far from number one. That is the United States. But that, that that does not mean that China does not want to project power. That does not mean China does not want to uh, uh, exert influence. Um, uh, and the problem, as I see it, in the Middle East is that the um, it should be to the U.S. interest uh, to contain Iran and to limit uh, China's expanding influence. But what the Biden administration is doing at this moment uh, by 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 re-engaging with Iran, realign U.S. interests uh, in the Middle East, but distancing from our traditional allies such as uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Israel, and UAE, um, uh, we're getting, we're kind of flirting with Iran, right? Um, and we're in order to reach that goal, and then uh, we we bring in a, a, a Chinese influence uh, um, um, uh, onto the uh, uh, table. Uh, and then, um, you know, just to be fair, at this moment, I don't think uh, the Chinese influence uh, is, is, is a real uh, problem uh, in the Middle East, which we have to reckon uh, for now. Uh, but if uh, if the trend goes like this, um, to appease Iran, we have to uh, uh, bring China in. And this is um, a, a recipe for a future uh, a future problem. Because we are creating an environment, a conducive environment for China to entrench first in Iran, and you know, get, you know, guess what? Once China does that, and because we are also distancing from our uh, Middle Eastern allies, that will force our uh, our traditional allies to get closer, uh, to work cl- more closely with China uh, again. I, 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 I mean. Uh, 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 in this context, and th- this is not to our interest. I mean, look at uh, um, uh, the the recent development. Uh, China signed um, a huge uh, joint venture with the UAE, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, and uh, uh, you know, in addition to this uh, this this Iran deal, so China is expanding its interest in the Middle East. Um, are we trying to limit that, or are, are we trying to encourage that? And so in my opinion, now we're encouraging that. Right. Michael, um, you know, if we follow the dots to what she is, um, you know, forecasting in the Middle East, um, it doesn't look good. It looks like everyone is going to grow and the U.S. will shrink, particularly with its influence um, in the Middle East and and globally. Um, and, it, you know, it partially because of what we're already seeing in the new landscape of the Middle East. And now we're creating, you know, in addition to that, um, more more influence like China to to be in the Middle East. Um, as a historian, what do you think? I mean, this I mean, this is maybe a bit difficult to, to forecast or, you know, have a crystal ball. But um, be, as a historian, where do you think this will fit in the course of history? How important will this be? Um, what are, I guess, what are the short-term, long-term ramifications of this China-Iran deal, and how effective will this be in actually changing the course of the Middle East? Well, I largely agree with UA's analysis. Look, as a historian, I get paid to predict the past, and my, my friends would say I only get that right about 50% of the time, and as you said, I don't have a crystal ball. I would say that there's a pattern inside um, Iran where there is always an attempt to make sort of a Hail Mahdi pass out to some third party, 
Back in the 19th century, it was the Austrians, then the Belgians, then the Americans, now the Chinese, uh, in order to sort of uh, allow Iran to bypass um, the difficulties which its own policies have gotten it into uh, with regard to other partners. Uh, Zhiwei is absolutely right, however, that um, it doesn't look like um, the Chinese are as serious about Iran as perhaps some of the public relations surrounding the Biden administration are suggesting they are. The other thing uh, to keep in mind, uh, if I can put on my history cap for a second and be a little bit of a nerd, you had the Iran-Iraq war from 1980 to 1988. That's when the Revolutionary Guard really became entrenched, really became powerful. Now, without moral equivalence, um, in 1988, you had a ceasefire and the Revolutionary Guard didn't want to go back into the barracks. So they took their equivalent of the Army Corps of Engineers and merged it with their equivalent of Bechtel and Hal Burton and KBR and Northrop Grumman and Boeing and ExxonMobil uh, and Chevron and Walmart and created this conglomerate, which today controls uh, about 40% of the Iranian economy. Now, this creates a problem both for the United States and for China. When it comes to China, you can try to make some broad deal with the Iranians to have a 25-year agreement, but the Revolutionary Guard doesn't want to give up its power, doesn't want to give up its monopolies, doesn't want to give up its control. At the same time, if you're the Biden administration and you decide you want to flood Iran with cash, who's going to get that cash? It's going to be disproportionately the Revolutionary Guard. So when we look at the Biden administration's rush to fund Iran, and to shower with incentives, the irony is that they are actually accelerating Iran's nuclear program rather than uh, allowing diplomacy to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Another way to look at it is we look at diplomacy as how to get to yes. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps looks at diplomacy as an asymmetric warfare strategy in order to tie our hands while they pursue their goals. You know, is that is that by design? Do you think that that's um, an unintended consequence of the way that the Biden administration or previously the Obama administration handled their diplomacy? Is that uh, do they realize that that or meaning are they trying to stop the nuclear program? I, I do think that they are trying to stop the nuclear program. The problem is they're allowing uh, partisan rhetoric and navel gazing to supplant the difficulties of actually negotiating a deal. It's, it's hugely arrogant to believe that there's some magic formula out there that after 40 years, no one but them, and a 40-something who's serving as a national security advisor who really hasn't traveled in this part of the world, that could somehow just make up out of a boardroom. It really is a problem, and unfortunately, they're playing with lives. Now, when it comes to Iran's nuclear program, for me, the nightmare scenario isn't that Iran is going to act suicidal and, and launch a nuclear weapon at Israel or Saudi Arabia or the United States. What I worry less is that Iran is suicidal, and what I worry much more is that Iran is terminally ill, because it's not Iran's nuclear program. It's the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps' nuclear program, and when you consider the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, they're not a monolith, and it's going to be the... Um, core of the Revolutionary Guard, which has been screened for their ideological purity, which is going to have command and control. Well, what happens if you have an uprising in Iran, like we've seen um, 
1999 and 2001 and 2009 and over the last couple of years, but the Revolutionary Guard or some of the security forces join in so that the regime's about to collapse. It only has 24 hours left. If we actually allow them to get nuclear weapons, then that as the regime collapses, the Revolutionary Guard and that core who are ideologically pure are going to figure, look, we're gone tomorrow anyway. Deterrence is off the table. It no longer matters. Now's our time. That's the that's the nightmare scenario which we need to avoid. And if you talk to Israelis, if you talk to Saudis, that's the nightmare scenario which they consider. But unfortunately, we're going down the path to enable that nightmare scenario to take place. Yes, uh, you know what's interesting. Um, you you started with the Iran Iraq War, and then it, it it triggered something inside my mind about how, you know, um, in the eighties, how the mullahs used that war to rally the Iranian people around the flag. But now what they're doing uh, at the international table is actually inversely um, causing the Iranian people to turn away, um, whether it's the China-Iran deal that, that you know, I, I, I hear day in and day out that the people of, of, of Iran are accusing their government of actually selling them out, selling the country and giving the country away. Um, and, you know, what they're, what they're doing with the Biden administration or what they're doing with trying to get back into a deal, many, many, many Iranians are... Um, um, they, they think it's it's lessening their chance of going out onto the streets, of making their voices heard like they were able to do um, in, in previous years. And Bijan, I want to um, end the program by asking you the, the reaction of the Iranian people to the Iran-China deal uh, and how, you know, taking that into the future and how they view their future, how they view their government and how their movement has evolved whether it's under Obama, Trump, and now under Biden. Yeah, uh, Lisa, I think this is great. If the average output, uh, Michael is saying, what you is saying, what you're saying, I think we conclude that the China-Iran deal needs to be looked at from a different angle. You know, there is a, uh, there's a first the expression that I'm sure Michael is familiar with. It's called the green door of the government. We call it data bogusabs. The Chinese are masters at practicing this old negotiation technique, which you show your opponent in negotiations the green door to a government. Knowing full well, there's nothing behind that green door. It's just a green door. There's no garden. But you keep saying there is a garden behind that door, and then you start taking advantages. Like, of course, the four areas that are in the 18 pages of this uh, China-Iran deal, 25 years, which I think Julie and Michael have all uh, both alluded to the fact that this may be more of a public relations campaign than a true economic cooperation. You know, China is not going to forego its relationship with the United States and others just to just to be able to cozy up to a half-dead Islamic Republic. There is no future. China will not do that. Uh, of course, I have to say this. There is no one who could say with confidence, they're either naive or pretending to be naive, if they put the malintentions of communist China as uh, somewhat at a discounted level. No, I am not that naive person. Communist China has specialist materialistic goals. They're doing everything Bijan, they can. Having, sorry, I'm not so worried Bijan, about we're China having a hard time here. hearing you. Um, you're, cutting, you're cutting out a lot. I don't know if it's... Um, Is it better me, now? Let's see. 
it's uh it's cutting out quite a bit let me move to uh shiwe for another question and we'll come back to you if we can fix it hopefully shiwe i want to ask you um if you had the the president's ear uh both on china and iran what would you advise the president to do in a way that's constructive um on both fronts in curbing their growth and also you know protecting the u.s foreign policy and our assets Oh, uh, great question. Um, first of all, uh, uh, allow me to say uh, China and America are both superpowers. And then although we're, we have a lot of differences, um, we uh, cannot, you know, uh, uh, either can, uh, uh, neither countries can, uh, uh, neither country can uh, afford uh, a, um, a head-on clash uh, at, uh, with the other. So um, we have to find ways to cooperate and then uh, coordinate our policies. And I think I do think Iran is a place where, where we can do that. It's just that the uh, Biden administration's approach by promoting or by conniving uh, these uh, uh, China-Iran deal uh, to uh, happen is not the right approach. Uh, we can imagine uh, what, what would have been a better approach. Uh, right, so a uh, weakened, uh, uh, you know, situation, uh, you know, alternative situation, we can keep our pressure up um, against Iran uh, to uh, to uh, to force the Iranian regime uh, uh, to negotiate uh, uh, for a comprehensive deal, right? And then we can work with China, and then we we understand China has its uh, legitimate uh, interest uh, uh, in the region, uh, its commercial interest, uh, it, uh, um, and then. We can work with China and we say, uh, for example, we allow you to continue to buy Iranian oil just, you know, under, uh, you know, just like what we allowed them to do uh, under the Trump administration. You buy Iranian oil, but you cannot pay them dollars. You, you settle in Yemenbi and then this, uh, uh, your, your dealing with Iran is only humanitarian, food and, uh, uh, food and humanitarian, right? Um, and we can work with China uh, on that to bring Iran uh, to a compromise for uh, uh, for a comprehensive and lasting deal, why would China want to do that? Because China understands um, under the current situation, it cannot um, uh, um, uh, have its uh, 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 interest maximized in Iran because of a deep political uh, risk uh, of instability uh, of what the Iranian regime would do, what America would do on Iran. Uh, so. It is to China's long-term interest, uh, in my opinion, to work with America. Should America decide to uh, to pressure Iran to eventually uh, create a, a a better, more comprehensive, lasting deal with Iran, then China can enter Iran just like any other um, uh, international um, player uh, and compete on more or less a fair basis um, uh, in the local market. You know, like uh, what China is doing uh, elsewhere uh, in the Middle East, right? So we see uh, 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 China is making uh, uh, good uh, inroads, uh, commercial inroads in uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, in UAE. Um, and then uh, China understands um, with that kind of stability under a long term deal, it's better for its uh, 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 long term interest. So it is very likely China would uh, uh, come on board with us in that regard. Uh, but unfortunately, we have decided we want to go back to the deal no matter what. And then um, uh, even at the uh, uh, cost of uh, um, having China on board to appease Iran, which in my opinion is just a uh, recipe, again, a recipe for disaster. Um, uh, it, it, it's a really wrong-headed policy.
um, that uh, uh, really doing a disservice uh, to uh, to the United uh, uh, to the U.S. national interest, the Iranian national interest, and the Chinese national interest. Yeah, absolutely, um, Mr. Kian. Can we come back to you? Are we are we better uh, yeah, now? I, I, can you give I us a quick I synopsis? My, uh, I think my uh, my sound here is it better now? It's still a bit choppy, but maybe you can give us a quick synopsis on where the people of Iran are at. We want to hear from them about, you know, what what they're they're such did, a did big. The part, did you hear the part that I was talking about the Green Door Garden and the public relations campaign from China? Maybe coordinated, who knows? Maybe coordinated with the United States. But the reaction of people in Iran is very severe. They're not discounting the fact that communist China is a predator. Economically, traditionally, that's the way it's been. And Iran has uh, natural resources, raw materials that they need. They're the biggest buyers of raw materials. Of course, they will continue doing that. And that's the first part of this 18 pages kind of illusion of you see it now, you don't see it now. Uh, protocol, MOU, treaty is not. But, uh, you know, that's the first step is that people are concerned, the fishermen, in southern Iran are seriously concerned that livelihood is affected because the Chinese ships are using vacuums to take life out of the Persian life in terms of their livelihood. So they're really concerned. People are concerned that why? From Even from the learned, the academics are sitting back and saying, why? You are at your weakest point. The weakest point you are, why are you signing a 25-year contract. Of course, bottom line, there is no contract. There is no agreement. The foreign ministry from China is silent about it. They're not talking about it. And then Zarif says, oh, well, the Chinese never talk about their deals. Sure, they never talk about their deals. That's not true, actually. They do talk about their deals. So the reaction is mixed. In Iran, people are concerned. They're very concerned. But could it be? Could be that the so-called China deal is a huge distraction needed to say, come on, vote for the guy that's going to stand up against the China deal and then then build this as a national yes. momentum to bring people to the polls and make the election look like it's real. Yes. Which it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. Our election is not real. It's a sham. Yes, I think I, one of the one of the big takeaways here is that timing is never coincidental, not for the Chinese, not for the Iranians. Everything that we're seeing is timed to uh, you know, for, for a, a particular agenda, for a reason. It's on their timeline. I know that uh, our historian here can attest to that. And Xi Wei Wang knows that very well. And also Bijan Kian. I thank you all very much for joining us tonight. A wonderful discussion. I hope to have you all thank back you on our program. Thank you for having us. Very, good very soon. Good seeing you, Shui. And to the rest of you who would like to sign up for our weekly podcast, you can subscribe at youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. And to sign up for our daily top 10 email, go to foreigndesknews.com slash newsletter and you can sign up there. Thank you so much and have a wonderful evening.